Hello and welcome to this podcast presented by LexisNexis. Because the law is everywhere, at the heart of our lives and our discussions, this series brought to you by LexisNexis and guests will cover current issues that impact us daily. My name is Monica Sorensen, Marketing Manager at LexisNexis Canada. I would like to introduce our guest for today, Kyla Lee. Kyla Lee is a prominent criminal defense lawyer in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. She is highly regarded in the realm of impaired driving thanks to her unparalleled string of success in courts and tribunals. Kyla has appeared as counsel at all levels of court in BC and at the Supreme Court of Canada. She is renowned for her knowledge of the immediate roadside prohibition IRP laws and was the first lawyer to explain the deficiencies of the IRP scheme to the justices of the Supreme Court. Kyla has an in-depth understanding of the techniques and devices police use to enforce impaired driving laws and has completed the manufacturer's training program to supervise calibration of the ALCO sensor FST-approved screening device. Kyla has many other achievements, including writing two books with LexisNexis Canada, Immediate Roadside Prohibitions in Western Canada, and Cross-Examination the Pinpoint Method. Kyla, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. International Women's Day is in March, and we're excited to celebrate it with you. As an accomplished female lawyer and author, please let us know who inspired you to get into the legal industry and why. Um, Okay, this is silly, but uh, I've always wanted to be a lawyer, like even when I was a very, very small child. And I think the first sort of memory that I have of of hearing about lawyers and what they do was when I read the Nancy Drew books because Nancy Drew's dad was a lawyer and he drove this banana yellow Cadillac that was very exciting to me as a as a six-year-old reading the books um, and uh, I just I, w- I found myself always more interested in what her dad was doing like every every scene that she would have where she'd have an interaction with her dad, I found him to be very compelling, very interesting and thoughtful. And I was like, yeah, I want to, I want to be a lawyer when I grow up. Um, I even told my grandmother, this was before she died, her favorite story to tell um, was that we would be walking together uh, to her house and I'd look up at her and say, Grandy, when I grow up, I'm going to be a lawyer. And she'd say, okay, that's nice. (laughs) Little did she know. (laughs) that uh, I would make it happen. So I don't know. I guess that's sort of where the inspiration came from. But I I don't remember a time in my life where I n- never wanted to go to law school and become a lawyer. So there you go. So then would you say Nancy Drew or Carolyn Keene or even your grandmother was a I- mentor for you growing up? Oh, all three for sure. I was like obsessed with Nancy Drew and my grandmother was my best friend. I would, I would spend every Sunday with her. Um, she looked after me after school for a long time while my dad was doing his, um, graduate degree and my mom was working. She was a nurse. So, you know, I had, I had a lot of time with her. Um, and I would call her like every day I would phone her. If I was sad, I would phone her. If I had good news, I would phone her. Um, she was, she was a mentor and a role model and, you know, she was never a lawyer. She was never a professional. She, um, did exactly what she wanted to do in her life, which was to become a grandee. Um, even in her high school yearbook, uh, she was asked, you know, what her goals are. And she said, I want to get married. I want to have children and I want to have grandchildren. And she did it. And I, you know, I admired that about her. She knew what she wanted and she did exactly what she wanted. And she made 
what she wanted with her life. And I, I found that very inspiring. And while my goals were different, it was the same, you know, sort of seeing a path that made sense to me and following it and pursuing that and not caring what other people said, you know, for her, it was other people saying you should have a career. You should be, you know, do these things because this is what a feminist does. And for her, her feminism was, was doing what, what made sense to her and what she valued and wanted to do with her life. So, yeah, I mean, she's, she always was and always will be one of my biggest heroes. Sounds like your grandmother was a great mentor for you. Uh, growing up, would you say right now you're a mentor for other women in the legal industry? If so, what is the most important thing you advise them about? Um, yeah, I mean, I participate in a lot of formal mentoring programs and I do a lot of informal mentoring. I have, um, I think four or five formal mentees. Um, and then at my firm, um, there's a lot of junior lawyers who are also women. Uh, I have a lot of um, friends and um, other uh, lawyers that are women that I reach out to on social media. I do a lot of sort of mentoring using my social media channels. I've found that it's easier now to connect with people. When I went through law school, which is like 12 years ago now, um, when I went through law school, it was hard to meet lawyers. It was hard to get to know them, um, and especially women, and especially especially women who practiced in criminal law, because they weren't accessible. Like you couldn't just Google a lawyer and then become friends with them and and ask them about things. You had to go to these networking events, and you had to you had to meet people, and then you had to establish a relationship. And it was very hard for me because I'm incredibly shy, um, and and so I, I never really had that as a law student or as a young lawyer. I didn't have a lot of female mentors. Um, so now I try and make myself available to anybody who messages me. You message me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. I'm on all of them. And if somebody says, hey, can I spend like five minutes asking you about something or can I pick your brain or can I take you for coffee? I usually turn down the coffee, but I'll talk to them on, on Zoom or something um, because I'm shy. Um, you know, I, I, I want to make myself available to as many young women out there who are interested in criminal law as possible. And I'm also super fortunate because my uh, one of my younger cousins, his girlfriend, um, told me several years ago that she was interested in a career in law and I was able to get her like a job working part-time in one of our offices to see how it, um, how it went. She really enjoyed that. She ended up working, um, very briefly as a legal assistant for the provincial government and then, uh, got accepted into law school and she's graduating this year and she's going to come article with me. And I'm like, so happy to be able to see somebody through from, you know, the contemplation stage of should I go to law school all the way to now, you know, she's going to be a lawyer and she's going to be amazing. And I, you know, I'm going to selfishly take credit for some of that. Um, and I don't know, it's just, it's nice to me to be able to see young women reach out to women in this profession. And I want to encourage that as much as I possibly can. Yeah, I think that's really great that you're providing lots of support and encouragement to people. And uh, you're, you seem very personable that people can reach out to you, especially over social media. And, you know, you'll give them the time of day and you'll give people advice if, if they want to talk to you. 
did you know that you always wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer? Did you always want to practice criminal law? My path to criminal law was um, interesting. I, when I went into law school, I originally wanted to work um, in Indigenous law. I, I did my undergrad at UBC, and I got a bachelor's in First Nations Studies. It's now the Indigenous Studies program, but at the time it was First Nations Studies. And I thought, yeah, you know, I want to do treaty rights cases. I want to work on, like, land claims and Indigenous uh, harvesting rights and things like that. I thought that that would be where I would end up. But when I went into law school, I started taking courses in that area, thinking, you know, this is going to be what I do in my career. And I started to realize that you would essentially end up working on maybe one or two cases that would take your entire career to resolve. And I just don't, I don't know, I don't, that's not for me. I, I, I like the idea of, of accomplishing something, but I like the idea of accomplishing something quickly. <laughs> and um, I don't know that I would have got the sense of sort of fulfillment and the ability to make the change that I wanted to make by doing that. So I was taking criminal law classes as well because criminal law is interesting and, um, you know, the, the fact patterns are, are often very unique. Um, so I started applying for uh, criminal law jobs. The other thing that sort of distracted me from a criminal law career was, um, you know, going into law school, I didn't have money. Um, I was paying for everything myself. I was working five jobs by the end of law school to try and, you know, pay my rent and pay my tuition and, you know, graduate with as little debt as possible. Still graduated with a ton of debt, but, um, and so I, I got really distracted by the idea of going and working in big law. Um, the, you know, the salaries were very enticing and the law schools often pushed, um, us sort of towards that, like the, the networking events, the on-campus interviews were all designed around that type of law. If you want to work at a small criminal firm, most criminal lawyers, it's, the criminal lawyer and maybe an article student or maybe two or three criminal lawyers and one article student shared by all of them. So the law school doesn't really have the same opportunities to sort of advertise those careers. Um, so it seemed like big law was going to be more accessible to me. But when I uh, applied, every, every single place I applied, I did not get an interview, not even like an OCI. I, I got rejection letters from every single firm, which was very disheartening. But then I got sick. Uh, I got H1N1 and I was on quarantine, which is weird to say now in the middle of like the actual pandemic. Um, and I had nothing else to do. So I started emailing every criminal lawyer I could find. I would, I, I found like the, the, worst looking GeoCities websites. <laughs> and I was emailing, finding an email address from there and emailing being like, are you interested in hiring an article student? I'm looking for work. Um, and I found the firm that I still work at today, um, got an interview and that's how I ended up in criminal law. So I think it was meant to be in the end. So then it sounds like the rejection letters uh, worked out for you then because you're still <laughs> at the same place. Yes, I'm glad that I got rejected. <laughs> so in your 12-year career, have you made any mistakes along the way and have you learned from them? 
I've made a ton of mistakes. I'll, I feel like all I do is make mistakes sometimes, um, but mistakes are great. I mean, mistakes are your opportunity to learn. And, you know, there'll be anything from, you know, you make a mistake in the middle of your cross-examination and you're standing there feeling like your pants are on the floor and everybody's staring at you. Um, but it's an opportunity to learn how not to ask a very bad question again. It's an opportunity to uh, learn how to pivot and how to think on your feet and how to use something negative to your advantage. Um, I lose a lot of cases, like every lawyer. I mean, if any lawyer tells you they don't lose cases, it's because they're not running cases. <laughs> um, and when I lose, every time I get a copy of the decision and I sit down and I look at it and I go, what is useful in this decision to me? Whether it's, you know, a paragraph that interprets the law in a way that might be helpful in a future case, whether it's an analysis of a legal issue that can be used to look at another legal issue a different way that might be helpful to my clients. Um, you know, I, I like making mistakes because I think that they're the best way to learn and develop your skills and grow. And I mean, I think that also with the legal profession, there's sort of a, a fear of this creating this perception that you're human and that you make mistakes. There's this fear of, of doing something wrong or misstepping. And obviously like missteps can have significant consequences for your clients. Like don't miss the limitation date, things like that. But you know, if you make a mistake, um, it, it, it can actually be uh, sometimes the best thing that can happen for your client, as long as you know how to deal with it and you don't let the mistake derail you. So, you know, that's why I try and take that view of mistakes, of, of seeing them as opportunities, both to learn and develop my own skills, but also as opportunities maybe to look at the case or look at an issue a different way. Um, and I think it's also important to other young lawyers to see me or to see anybody as somebody who is fallible and somebody who's human and somebody who missteps. And so that when it happens to them, because it will happen to every single lawyer, um, they're going to know, you know what, it's okay. I know Kyla and she made a mistake and she's she's doing fine. So I can make a mistake too. And I'm going to get through this. We put so much pressure on ourselves as lawyers to be perfect because we have so much riding on the work that we do. And I think that that pressure could easily like destroy your mental health and destroy your ability to um, really enjoy your life and enjoy the practice of law if you let it get to you every time something doesn't go your way. So, you know, I want people to know that lots of things cannot go your way and you can still be doing fine. I think that's some good advice that you provided there about reviewing cases that you've lost. Uh, what other advice would you provide to young women thinking about becoming a lawyer or studying criminal law? Um, hmm. Well, I mean, I guess one of the biggest things that I would say is you have to be tough. Uh, it's, you know, you can be sensitive. And a lot of people want to go into criminal law because they are very sensitive to the struggles that other people face that land them in the criminal justice system. But what you're going to see very quickly is that the criminal justice system is not a place that's going to help 
people with those issues. Yes, we have things like we have drug treatment courts and we have indigenous courts and we have, um, you know, there's programming available in jails and through probation offices and, and there's diversion programs and all sorts of things like that. But getting to the root cause of what brings people into criminality you're not going to be able to do with the blunt instrument that is the criminal law. So, you know, tough, tough, toughen up right away because you are going to constantly be let down by the inherent failings of a system that isn't designed to deal with the social problems that bring people into it. Um, and the only way that, that you can change that is to innovate. So that's my second piece of advice, which is be innovative you know, judges are are often looking for solutions that can help people. And I've I've gone into court saying crazy things <laughs> that I think judges would never accept or that like lawyers, one of my first trials, I remember a lawyer pulled me aside um, and it was like, I'm, I was halfway through my cross and he's like, kiddo, you've got a tough road to hoe. And I did not like being called kiddo, but I was like, yeah it's okay. And I ended up winning that trial. <laughs> I, I rode my tough hoe, uh, or hoed my tough row. I don't know. I'm not a gardener. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, thinking, using innovation and finding creative solutions to the problems that are putting your clients in the criminal justice system, the problems that are facing you in your case and thinking about it in a different way has really, really served me. And that's what I, I also love about young lawyers is they haven't, you know, been indoctrinated into the way that things are done. Um, you can't see me, but I'm putting air quotes around that. Um, the way that things are done uh, works to the extent that it has worked. But it's not the only way of doing things. And I love seeing new perspectives about how to deal with sentencing, reading cases where people are presenting interesting social science evidence, um, seeing different ways of looking at scientific or expert evidence to try and prove a point. And the use of innovation, especially if you're tough enough to ignore the haters who are going to tell you that's not the way that we do it and that can't be done. The only reason that something can't be done is because nobody's asked for it to be done. And if the law prohibits it from being done, then change the law, challenge the law. If you don't like what the law says, there's a whole mechanism to try and get rid of that law. And even if a case has said, no, that's fine, that law is good, and, and this is not a problem, that doesn't mean that you can't take another run at it. One of, of course, the like most amazing Canadian lawyers ever, Beverly McLaughlin, I, I went to a talk uh, shortly after she retired um, from the Supreme Court of Canada. And she said uh, at that talk, you know, it doesn't matter if the Supreme Court ruled something a long time ago. Persuade judges to revisit the issues because we can revisit the issues at the Supreme Court of Canada and the Supreme Court of Canada will revisit issues. So nothing is set in stone forever. And I love that. I love the idea that just because one judge said the law is constitutional doesn't mean I have to listen. <laughs> I can still challenge it and think about a different angle, think about different evidence, or just think about the way that society has changed since the last judgment and, and demonstrate that that's no longer good. And so, you know, toughness, innovation, and never backing down. I think those are the three tips I would have for young women going into law, not just criminal law, but any area of law.
Yes, Beverly McLaughlin, I agree. She's definitely uh, a trailblazer in this industry. So in addition to your many achievements over your career, you've also written two books for LexisNexis Canada, Cross-Examination, The Pinpoint Method, and Immediate Roadside Prohibitions in Western Canada. Let's talk a bit more about those, if you don't mind. Um, Sure, I guess. Um, I started out writing opinion columns for the Lawyers Daily, and... um, then the editor there approached me and said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And truthfully, I, I had. I had always wanted to write a book on cross-examination because, you know, being a criminal lawyer, you do a lot of trials and you you develop your cross-examination style. And everywhere that I went and every one that I saw that was talking about cross-examination, it was always, especially like here in British Columbia, it was always men. There were very, very little resources for from women about cross-examination. And I thought, you know, if if some, you know, white dude can do it, then so can I. And I know that sounds like a silly thing to say, but it's actually what I tell myself constantly because in, you know, in this profession, we see white men excelling and achieving all the time. Like that is the status quo. Um, and so my motto has been, if, if some white guy can do it, then so can I. Um, and so far, it seems to be uh, true. Um, I went to a uh, cross-examination training session. I was actually asked to be one of the, um, there were breakout sessions, and I was asked to be one of the leaders of the breakout session. But the person who was teaching their method was somebody who looked to be roughly my age. Um, and and I was like, okay, well, if if I'm not too young men to do this. I'm not, you know, I'm not too junior to write about cross-examination. I can do this. So when the editor of the Lawyer's Daily asked me, do you want to um, write a book? I said, yes, I would like to write a book on cross-examination. Thinking that LexisNexis would say, oh no, Kyla, there are many much more qualified people to do this. But um, to my like shock and surprise and and glee, uh, they said, yes, let's do it. And um, I'd also pitched a backup idea, which was a book on immediate roadside prohibitions, which are essentially a a decriminalization of drunk driving. Um, And they uh, brought in an immediate roadside prohibition scheme initially in BC in 2010. um, And then it's slowly been trickling into other, uh, other provinces. So Saskatchewan has one and then Alberta was just about to bring theirs in at the time I was writing the book. And uh, so this was my backup. Oh, if you don't want to write, if you don't want a book about this cross-examination, why not a book about these? Because it's going to be a big deal for Alberta lawyers. And um, I somehow got roped into writing two books at the same time, which in hindsight was a crazy thing to agree to, but I'm managed to do it. I locked myself down in uh, the Hume Hotel in Nelson, BC. um, And I told my office, I'm going somewhere. You can't reach me. I can't be talked to. Uh, I won't tell you where I am because I know that, like, if you know where I am, suddenly we'll have a court case there that I'm going to have to go deal with because that's how it works, right? If people know where you are, court will find you. Um, And uh, I wrote. I I sat in my room and I wrote for two weeks straight um, and got most of it done um, in those uh, those two weeks. Thankfully, my office didn't find me. (laughs) 
I think you're actually our first author who wrote two books that published simultaneously, believe it or not. Really? Oh my God. Yes. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Wow. Okay. Well, that's cool. (laughs) Well, thank you, Kyla, for joining us today and giving us a bit more insight into your legal career. Use promo code WOMEN2022 to get 15% off Kyla's books, cross-examination, the pinpoint method, and immediate roadside prohibitions in Western Canada. They are available online through our e-store, lexisnexus.ca slash store. Kyla, would you like to say any closing words? Uh, Well, I would say that, first of all, please buy my books. (laughs) And um, secondly, thank you so much for having me on this podcast and um, for featuring my work. It's um, the support that I've gotten from LexisNexus, um, both as a young female lawyer and an author and in this endeavor has been really wonderful. And I think that if anyone listening can take any lesson from this is if you're thinking about doing something, if something there's something out there in the legal profession that you want to do, go do it because you can. 